First John chapter 5. First John 5. We have come full circle now from John initially telling us in chapter 1 that he's writing this letter that we would know Jesus better, that we would have that deep relationship with him and that our joy would be full as a result of knowing him better, going deeper with him. And We come full circle because in verse 13, he reminds us of that, of chapter 5. These things have I written unto you that believe. You already believe on the name of the Son of God. You're already saved. I'm writing it to you so that you would know you have eternal life. John says the way that our joy will be full, the way that we're going to go deeper in our relationship with Christ is to have that assurance, to be assured of our salvation. And as a result, he says that knowing you have eternal life, that you might believe, keep on trusting on the name of the Son of God, that you'd keep going deeper with Him. So that when we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have eternal life, we trust Jesus more, right? When we know we're His, we trust Him more. And then when we trust Him more, we experience the joy of deepening our relationship with Him. Now, when you're doing that and you're getting closer to the Lord day by day, that's going to affect your prayer life. We talk to Him more because we trust Him more. And when we trust Him more, our prayers are made with greater confidence. And that's what John's going to talk about now, this byproduct of knowing that we have eternal life. It gives us confidence for when we pray. So verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. John starts off by explaining this is the confidence that we have in Him. The this refers to the fact that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. We have confidence because He hears us. But what is this confidence that He's talking about? The word refers to a a state of boldness in your relationship with someone, frankness. When you speak frankly with someone, it means you don't hold anything back. You speak freely. When you have confidence in your relationship with someone, you're not always like watching every little word you say. You're not thinking to yourself, oh, I can't say that around them or I can't say this around them because you know you can speak freely. You have confidence. This is the confidence, the boldness, the frankness that we have, not because we're in Him, but literally in Him means toward Him, face to face with Him. When we know that we are saved, when we're going deeper with the Lord, we treat Him differently. We don't stay away from Him, and we we come boldly to Him with our needs. Now, of course, we don't see Jesus face-to-face yet, but the Scriptures refer to our prayer time as a face-to-face type of meeting. We don't come to Him backwards like this, or I can't look at you, or I'm not worthy of you. I've got to watch every little thing I say. We don't come to Him like that. We don't come with our heads covered up. We don't come with our heads hanging low in shame. Lord, you probably don't want me here. We don't come like that. We come knowing that we're in Christ. We come knowing that I belong to Him, that I'm welcome there, and that He wants to bless me. And when we don't have that assurance of our salvation, we don't come to Him like that. We don't come face to face, or we don't come at all. And as a result, we miss out on what God has for us. James in chapter 4, verse 2 of his letter, he said, you have not because you ask not. He has some other reasons why we don't experience receiving from the Lord, but that's one of the things he says. You don't have because you don't ask. Why don't we ask? We don't ask because we don't trust the Lord. We either plan to deal with it ourselves or for some reason we think God won't deal with it if we ask Him. 
Think about some of the reasons you don't pray. What are they? Sometimes we don't pray because we feel like, well, I'm being selfish. If I pray about this, that's a selfish thing. I mean, you know, there's lots of bigger things going on in the world right now than my little tiny need right here. Sometimes because we, we pray because we think it's selfish. But again, that's, we're not trusting the Lord, that He loves us, that He's interested in, in us, that when He says that He delights to bless us, you know, we think, well, that's others or that's big situations. It's not me and my situation right now. We don't trust Him, what He says. Sometimes we don't pray because we tell ourselves we don't have time for prayer, or sometimes we don't want to take the time to pray. We think if we spend time in prayer, we'll miss out on something else. You say, what do you mean? Well, any of you who've ever done a diet, you know what that means, right? Like, have you ever dieted, and then all of a sudden, your wonderful, precious daughter makes funnel cake? (laughs) And then you think to yourself, I shouldn't eat that. I'm not supposed to eat that. But why is it a temptation? Because you think, if I don't eat that, I'm going to miss out, right? That's why we eat the things we're not supposed to eat. My life will be better if I do do this. Same thing why we don't pray. We don't trust the Lord. Lord, just give me this time. We go, but if I give you this time, I can't do this. I'll miss out. We don't trust that it's worth it. We don't trust that it's better to do that. We don't trust God. Sometimes we don't pray because we don't think God cares. Again, we don't trust Him. We don't believe what He says. He says, I love you with an everlasting love. Or sometimes we don't pray because we don't think we're good enough for God to answer us. Again, we don't trust it. We don't trust that when Jesus said it's finished, that it was finished. We don't trust it when it says if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We say, well, yeah, but. Again, we, we don't come, we don't ask because we don't trust the Lord. If any of the reasons that I brought up just now resonates with why you don't pray as much as, as you could or should, well, then either you don't understand what, or misunderstand what it means to have life in Christ, or you're somehow missing the life that Christ gives. Either way, you don't have that assurance that God offers you. So, you know, if that's the case, then you need to take care of that. Go back to some of the earlier parts of 1 John. Go back to the parts of the Bible that tell us who we are in Christ. Or maybe you've never been born again. You need to repent of your sins and trust Christ. But when you and I do understand what it means to be in Christ, when you and I know that I'm my beloved's and he's mine, well, then Jesus' promises are different. Now they become very real to us, don't they? Now they become very real. And one of Jesus' promises to us has to do with our prayers. We read about in our scripture reading where Jesus said, listen, if you pray something and you trust the Lord for it, and it's in his will, he'll do it. And that's what John reiterates here. He's not making up something new here. He says, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we ask, the phrase here, if, is an if-then statement without the then, but in in the New Testament language, remember, there's four ways that you can say an if-then statement. This one is the if-then of greater likelihood. In other words, John expects that believers are going to be praying. He expects that generally that's a general behavior of a believer. If you're a believer, you're going to be praying. You're going to be asking God for stuff. But he says here, if we ask, it should be translated, if we should ask or if we might ask. In other words, John acknowledges that some believers might not take advantage of Jesus' promise concerning prayer. 
So which are you? Are you the one that's recognizing that this is your position in Christ and you're, you have a strong prayer life? Or is prayer not a regular part of your life? Are you asking God regularly to work in your life and in the lives of others, or, or is that not the case? Now, there is a good reason for us to pray, because he says if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. That word anything there is wide open. In other words, prayer works for every kind of situation. There's never a situation that you might find yourself in and said, you know, normally we could pray, but not now. There's never a situation like that. You know, it's funny. I've had conversations with people, and, and I said, wow, man, we, let's, let's pray. And they're like, what? Like, we need to act. I'm like, no, let's pray. We need to pray. There is never a situation where prayer doesn't work or doesn't apply. So this is the confidence we have in him that if we ask anything, any situation, if we ask something according to his will, he hears us. Now, the word according to here, I don't know if you remember months ago, I showed you like this monstrous diagram of prepositional phrases. And the idea is we don't use prepositional phrases this way, but in New Testament language, they did. In the Koine Greek of the New Testament, prepositional phrases all have a directional motion. And the prepositional phrase, according to here, has the motion of downward motion going into something. So the idea here is, how can we have confidence that he hears our prayers? Well, if we ask anything, and that anything according to his will, the word according to, it means a downward into motion. So if your anything fits into, you can put it into what God's will is, then you have this guaranteed promise that he hears you. Well, what's this box that is God's will? Well, it's what God wants, what pleases God. Let me ask you, do you have confidence when you pray? that God hears you? There's a way you can always know that God is hearing your prayers. It's when your request fits into His will, what pleases Him, what He wants. Well, how do you know? That's the million-dollar question, right? How do you know your specific request fits into God's will? Well, to know that, we must first know what God wants. We must first know what pleases God. Now, in the broad scheme of life, God is not hiding what He wants or what pleases Him. It's not like we've got to like roll a roulette thing and be like, ah, okay, that's what pleases God today. No. No, in the broad scheme of life, we can look in the Scriptures to see what God has revealed about Himself, and He explains what He wants and what pleases Him. For example, let's look at the topic of praying for an unbeliever. We know from Ezekiel 33, verse 11, that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. What pleases God is that a wicked person repents. So we can know that God wants to save unbelievers. We also know from Romans 1.16 that it's the gospel that is the power of God to salvation, that it has the power to awaken the unbeliever from their lost condition and to draw them to salvation. We know that. So we can know that God wants people to hear the gospel, an unbeliever to hear the gospel. Then we also know that Jesus instructed his disciples in Matthew 9, 38. He said, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers out to share the gospel. So we can know that if we're praying, God sends someone out to share the gospel with, an un- with this unbeliever that I know. We can know that that pleases him. We also know from 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that an unbeliever has been blinded by the enemy so that the gospel doesn't shine to them. So in light of all that knowledge, armed with all that knowledge from Scripture, 
you and I can pray this prayer with confidence. God, please send your servants to share the gospel with my family member, my coworker, my friend who's an unbeliever. Please take the blinders off their eyes and shine the light of your glorious gospel into their heart. You could pray that prayer that I just laid out for you or some variation of that. Know with 100% confidence that God hears that prayer and that he's going to work. You can know, absolutely. You don't have to wonder and go, does God love my coworker? Does God love my neighbor? Does God has an interest in saving them? I never have to wonder, should I pray that? No, I can pray with confidence and know that I've left that at the throne of God and he's going to work. And I can continue to pray that knowing that God's going to hear that prayer every single time. Now, I'm not saying this morning that if you pray, oh God, just please save my nephew, he needs you, that God's going to be like, no, you didn't pray that the way Pastor Will said and that God won't hear your prayer. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that only specifically worded prayers give us confidence. What I'm saying is that when we pray a biblical prayer, we can be convinced it's God's will. And as a result, we can have confidence that He hears us. Now, let's look at it from a different, different angle, okay? Let's say you're a Christian, but, but your parents aren't Christians, and they, they give you a hard time about going to church or about walking with the Lord or reading your Bible. If you're praying, God, please help my parents to be more understanding of how important this is to me, but at the same time, you're, you give your parents a bad attitude or you're, you lie to them about things or you're not doing your part in the family, well, now that's a prayer that doesn't fit into God's will, right? Your behavior is opposite of your, your prayer. Your prayer is now a selfish prayer and not a spiritual prayer. Sometimes there'll be folks who will come to me and they say, Pastor, I've been praying for my spouse, my, my kids, this for years and years and years. God's not answering. God doesn't hear. And I asked him, I say, well, why do you pray for them? Why do you pray for, why you been praying so hard for your spouse? Because I want my life to be easier. <laughs> well, that's why you got no confidence. You're not praying something that, that God desires. Your prayer is selfish. In the example I gave about the the child with an unbelieving parents, like a teenager with unbelieving parents, the Lord would rather that person pray, Lord, help help me to behave differently so that my parents can see the change you're working in me. Let that be the thing that shows them how important you are to me. Do you see the difference? There is a difference. I can absolutely know God hears that prayer because that prayer absolutely pleases the Lord, whereas the other one, He's going, I know you're praying, but we probably need to have a conversation. I know you're asking me for something, but we need to talk about your attitude. Now, most of praying in a way that fits into God's will falls into this kind of broad scheme of things. We can look to the Scriptures, find out what God's heart is, and we pray accordingly. But you might be wondering, okay, what about prayer requests that don't fit into that? Lord, should, I, should we buy this car or not? Like, I can't go to the Scriptures and say, says, thus says the Lord. Buy, buy the Honda Civic, <laughs> not the Toyota. It doesn't say that. So like, how then do I know what God's will is and what pleases Him and therefore can pray with confidence? Let's look at an example. You get a, a job opportunity that comes up. So you go through the Scriptures. The job opportunity doesn't violate any of God's commands. Like you're not being asked to be an axe murderer. You're not being asked to join a bank robbing team. You go, okay, tick, okay, all right. 
The job's not going to make you prioritize that job over your family or over your involvement in your church family or with God's call for your life. Okay, great. Check mark. Uh, your spouse supports you. Big check mark. Godly people, you've asked them for advice and they've given the all clear. They said, sounds like the Lord. Check mark. Good stuff. But even then, how can you know for sure when you say, you pray, God, please bless me with this job that it's in his will? Like, how can you know for sure? Well, in that situation, our confidence doesn't come from what we're praying. Our confidence comes from the fact that he hears us. Our confidence comes from the fact that he's working to respond to that prayer in a way that will be his will. In other words, this changes everything. See, so let's say you pray, God, give me this job, and you check all the boxes, and then it doesn't work out. Here's the confidence you can have. You go, well, praise the Lord. That wasn't God. That this would have been a bad thing for me. I dodged a bullet there, checked all the boxes, but I prayed and said, God, give me the job. And he said, no, I can have confidence. He heard me pray, God, please give me this job, which means his answer was a firm no, this is not what's best for you. Now, that's a way different way to experience a rejection than it is to go, oh, man, I was counting on this job, or oh, man, does God love me? Right? How we get sometimes. We can with confidence go, well, I know the Lord loves me, and I know He heard me. So, the answer was no. Or if you do get the job, then you can move forward with confidence and say, praise the Lord, God opened the door, now we're going to walk through it and you don't have to walk back. In contrast, if you want this job so badly that getting it takes priority how it will affect your family, or how it will affect your church life, or how it will affect your relationship with the Lord, well, then you're not going to have the same confidence that God is involved when you pray, God, please give me this job. And that, by the way, is whether you get the job or not. See, when you're not praying in the will of God, you're not going to have confidence even if you get the job because you'll look back, second guess, and go, did I force my way into this? Did I make this happen or did God make this happen? Do you see the difference? In the second example, what God wants is a secondary thought rather than our primary goal. We kind of want God to be pleased, but not if it means we don't get what we want. There can be no confidence in that kind of prayer, none. And that's also the reason why when we're not really walking closely with God, we don't pray very much. In contrast, when we know we're saved, we know we're, you know, we're going deeper with Jesus and what he wants is important to us, we pray more because we have this confidence that if we seek out what pleases him in our prayers, he hears and he gets involved and he answers us. Look at verse 15. And if, this is a different if then, this is a first class, which means it's a fact. So you could translate the if actually as since. And since we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, well, then we know that we have the petitions we desired of him. This word for no here, it's, it's not a no that's based on a feeling or an experience. It's an absolute settled forever head knowledge. It's something that's a doctrinal truth. This is the confidence we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And since we know that he hears us, oh, since we absolutely know that, Whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions we have desired of him. I love the whatsoever we ask. John says literally it means whatsoever your specific request might be. John makes this truth very personal to all of us with this phrase. I think 
Sometimes we lack confidence in prayer because we think our specific request isn't important in God's grand scheme of things. We think it's selfish of us to ask for help with school or for our husband to be more aware, or for a car that doesn't need so many repairs, or for, uh, we think, Lord, I need to do this exercise program because, you know, my job is more demanding now, and, you know, God, could you help me, you know, get more fit? And we think, God, God doesn't care about that. John says, I'm talking about any kind of request that you bring to the Lord here, any kind. Guys, we all have different lives, we all have different cares, but they all matter to the Lord. We were driving here today, and I don't know how we got on the topic, but I said, Mom knows all things. She goes, Mom does not know all things, and because uh, we were talking to Ethan in the car. And then I said, oh, so you're somniscient. You're not omniscient. Because she, she said, I know some things. God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows everything going on in your life, every little thing, and He cares about it. He's interested in it. He made you. He loves you. He died for you. Bring it to him. What's the worst thing he says to you? He says, no, you don't need to get fit. It'll make you prideful. Now get out of here. <laughs> I was a young man. I prayed a prayer. Me and my, one of my dear friends in high school we were learning to play the guitar. And, uh, and I'm an, I was an 80s kid. I was an 80s metal kid. So you want to learn how to shred if you're going to have a guitar. And I'm like, God, I want to learn. Help me to learn. Help me to learn. And I remember really sensed the Lord telling me as I would pray this, well, I'm not going to say yes to that prayer. Because if, you, if I let you learn how to do this, you're going to get so distracted, you're just going to go run off and try to be a rock star for, you know, whatever. And you'll miss out on all I have for you. I don't know why I shared that. <laughs> Any request, they all matter to the Lord. When you and I are absolutely convinced of the fact that God always and forever hears our prayers that are in His will, whatever they might be, well, then we can know something else absolutely that we have we possess the petitions that we ask from Him. We can absolutely know that we already have the sure answer that God will answer us. I, I, I don't know. If I, I probably should say that again. We can absolutely know that we already have the sure answer that God will answer us. I wish I understood that concept, the power of prayer better as a young man, a young Christian. Oh, I read the books and I heard the teachings, but I'm not sure... I, I, I really lived it out. I did a little, but not to the degree that I'm, I do now. Prayer used to be a last resort kind of thing for me, and now most of the time it's my first go-to. And it's because of this confidence. You know, the more assured I became of my salvation and the deeper I went in my relationship with Jesus, the more I prayed. Well, the more I prayed, the more I saw God move. And when you see God move in answer to your prayers, you're drawn to ask Him for more. Prayer is powerful, guys. God hears and God gets involved. And based on what I read in the Bible, God is far more eager to say yes than we are to ask. He's far more eager to bless us than we want to be blessed. Do you have that kind of confidence in prayer? If you do, then you know how it opens up your prayer life. You talk to Him about everything. You reach for the impossible more. The older I get, the more I do those things. Lord, why not? Why not ask? The worst thing that he could say is no. But if you don't have this kind of confidence in prayer, it likely stems back to your relationship with him. Are you convinced that you're saved? Are you convinced that he's for you and not against you? 
that He loves you? Are you convinced and assured that your sins are forgiven, that He wants to bless you? That's the assurance that God wants every believer to have. It's why John wrote this book. God wants you to come to Him with your requests. He wants you to make bold, audacious requests. Let me ask you a question. Could you imagine the impact we might have in our community if we all prayed like this? Let me throw something else at you. Don't answer this. (laughs) But how many of you are praying for our president to be saved, for our congressmen or senators to be saved? I'm sure some of you are, probably very regularly, but I'm guessing all of us are not. I'm guessing most of us probably aren't. It's much easier to read about something they said and get mad or did and get mad. How much might we impact things around us through prayer? I know that sometimes we hear the phrase out there, he will say, pardon my language, but they'll have an expletive, bleep your prayers, thoughts and prayers. A lot of governing officials who say, we need more, we need need to do something, not just pray after the fact. I wonder if we would see these things happen as much, though, if we were actually praying. Like we, we get mad when we hear that because we say, prayer is powerful, but do we actually pray? I don't say that to condemn you. I'm just challenging you. Where's your prayer life at? Are you confident? Do you believe it works? If you're ever looking to add to your library, I would encourage you to add the book, The Power of Prayer by R.A. Torrey. It's a life-changing book. We need to be those who pray with confidence, especially now. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, I get this. I understand it. Lord, I see that if I'm praying in your will, then I can know you hear me. But what about if I'm praying for someone else who isn't living in your will? Can I have confidence when I pray for them? Well, John addresses this next in verses 16 and 17. He says, if any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for him for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death, and I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. All right, that's self-explanatory. Let's move on to verse 18. Before we jump into the whole sin and the death thing, let's just get context here, right? We're here where we are. Let's understand where we are. John says if, and this is again a if-then statement, and this is a third class of greater probability. In other words, John expects it is very likely that you and I as believers will run into a situation like this, that we see a brother who is sinning a sin, a fellow believer who's sinning a sin, which means he's in the process of engaging in wrongdoing. It's not that he sinned something in the past or he, he failed one time, but he's in the process of doing something he shouldn't be doing. He's currently in that process. Now, we've all learned through 1 John that genuine believers progress in their obedience to God's standard. So, on that basis, we can have confidence when we're praying for a brother or sister in Christ and they're growing. But what about when we see someone who's not? What about when we see a brother or sister in Christ who's clearly disobeying God, and they're currently doing so? Can we have confidence when we pray for them? Well, John says it depends what kind of sin they're involved in. He says if they're sinning a sin which's not unto death, well, then you'll, you can pray and you can have confidence that God will give life to them that sin not unto death. But there is a sin unto death, and I'm not telling you you should pray 
pray for that. Okay, what is a sin unto death? So let me start off so I don't confuse anyone. What I'm going to explain to you this morning, I'm going to bring up some different viewpoints, and I'm not saying that if, if you have that viewpoint or if that church, different church has that viewpoint, that they're going to hell and they're evil. That's not what I'm saying here. I am going to share what I think it is, but I'm going to share a couple of viewpoints and why I don't think it's that. If you find someone that, like, meet someone who disagrees with what I'm sharing with you, or you disagree with me, then we could just agree to disagree. This is not something that we've got figured out here at Calvary Chapel Orlando and everybody else is wrong. That's not my point. But I am going to share this. So what is a sin unto death? Well, most modern translations of the Bible translate this phrase to say a sin that leads to death. I am going to point out, though, that is a very bad way of translating this verse. It's why if you have a modern translation that has the word lead in your Bible, very often it will be in italics, because when they put it in italics, they're letting you know that word's not in the original language. The word here, sin unto, does not mean lead. The word unto, it signifies something with a tendency toward death, not necessarily one that does involve death. So, what is a sin with a tendency toward death? What is a sin that doesn't have a tendency toward death? Isn't sin, all all sin the same? All sin is not the same. I don't have time to go into that this morning because that's an entire Bible study on its own. But we know that from other scriptures, all sin is not the same. So what two categories of sin is John talking about here? The truth is, since John says it very casually with no explanation, he expects his his listeners already know what it means. So he doesn't, we're 2,000 years, two continents, a whole different culture removed from the people who received this letter. So that is a, a gap, gap that we have to bridge. So how do we bridge that gap so we can understand what his readers understood? Well, I said one of the best ways you can do that normally is to go back and look at those who are closer to that time period and what they thought. In this case, that doesn't really help us out. The early church doesn't help us. None of them talk about John's words. And in other words, they all knew what it meant, that they didn't feel the need to explain it or elaborate on it. Not until about the third century AD. And when it is brought up, it's by two questionable sources, a guy named Tertullian and Origen. Their theology was a big departure from the way the church had approached interpreting Scripture up to that point, and their theology became a foundation for much of the heresy that entered the church in the fourth century. So, I'm just being honest, I take their interpretations not with a grain of salt, but with a lot of salt. Now, what did they teach? Well, these two men taught that the two sin categories were mortal sins and venial sins. If you have a Catholic background, you've probably heard that phrase before, okay? Mortal sin and venial sin. What are those? Well, a mortal sin is when they say you knowingly commit a sin that's on one of the lists that Paul mentions. Like Paul will say, don't you realize that murderers, da 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 they shall not inherit the kingdom of God? They would say if you knowingly commit one of those sins that like murder or adultery, that that kind of sin severs your relationship with God and you can never find redemption. That's a mortal sin. They would say a venial sin is one that's not on those lists. It injures our relationship with God, but the relationship can be repaired with enough penance and whatnot. Now, I can say with confidence that view is not biblical. Uh, There's lots of reasons. One, Paul includes lying and pride in most of those lists, which means all of us would be severed from God with no hope of redemption. Secondly, in Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21, after Paul gives one of these long lists, he says, oh, and by the way, 
anything else that's just like this that I didn't mention. In other words, all kinds of sin are a work of the flesh. There's no specific sins on a list that sever your relationship with God. In fact, the Bible gives no mortal sin or venial sin category. Is there a difference between knowingly sinning or just failing to do the right thing? Yes, of course there is. The Bible calls when we fall short of God. We we aim for the target, but we miss. He calls it sin, missing the mark. The Bible also uses the word trespass. That's when you see the sign. It says no trespass, and you go, I don't care. You know what you're doing is wrong, but you do it anyway. Here's the cool part. The Bible tells us that Christ died for our sins and our trespasses. So, any view uh, that there's a list of sins that can't be forgiven doesn't understand redemption, doesn't understand the cross. Now, almost all Protestants reject that early church view, which is why you have the modern translations that you do. Most Protestants teach that there are two types of sins. There are sins that lead to physical death and sins that don't lead to physical death. So it's not separation from God, but it's death in this life. There are two ways Protestants tend to interpret that. One view is that certain sins can affect your body negatively and kill you. For example, if you get drunk a lot, that's going to take a toll on your, your organs and other parts of your body, or you could get an accident. If you sleep around, you could get an STD. That's one view. The second view that Protestants take is that it will, if a believer persists in sinning, God might discipline that believer by taking them home to heaven early because they refuse, they just refuse to listen. Now, is it true that you could bring about an early death by gluttony or drunkenness or anger or sexual immorality? Of course, that is true. Uh, one person asked a, a pastor once, can you get to heaven if you smoke? And the pastor replied, yes, and it will get you there more quickly. Is it true that sometimes God takes a person home because they refuse to obey Him? Yes. I mean, we saw that with Ananias and Sapphira, right? We see it happen to a few people in the Bible. So I do understand why modern translations add the word lead here. I understand why many Protestants take one of these two views. But I would ask you this. If we fit that view into the verse here, does it make sense? Like if, if you see someone who's persisting in their sin, they won't stop, or they're, they're drinking themselves to a place where now they're starting to have physical problems, that John says, I'm not telling you, don't pray for them. Does that sound like the heart of God? Does that sound like the rest of Scripture? It does not, which is why I, ha- I, I don't agree with that viewpoint. I don't believe John is teaching either of those popular views based on what he's already taught us in this letter. I think context is important to understand what he's talking about here, or at least to get close. The only other time that John uses the word death in his letter is in 1 John 3.14, when he says this, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Now, is he talking about spiritual death or physical death there? Spiritual death, right? We know we've passed from separation from God to union with God because we have this love for the brethren, right? John uses the word life a lot in his letter. And it always refers to spiritual life, union with God. Just a few verses earlier, John makes that powerful statement, he that has the Son has life, and he that does not have the Son of God does not have life. John, remember all throughout this letter, he's been comparing genuine believers with those who are not genuine. So it seems more in context to think of a sin unto death or not unto death in these terms. 
This is the viewpoint that almost all language commentators take. They would say this refers to the unforgivable sin. In other words, a rejection of Christ. The sin unto death is a rejection of Christ. In other words, forgiveness of all and any kind of sin is found if we turn from our sins and we trust in Jesus. But the only sin that can't be forgiven is if, if unbelief, if we refuse to believe Christ, we refuse to trust Christ. Now, if we take that viewpoint and we look at what John says here, now it makes sense. It says here, if you see your brother or sister in the process of acting wrongly, John says when you pray for them, you can have confidence that God will hear and he will work in their life, that he'll breathe life into them. In other words, we aren't supposed to write off a fellow believer just because they fell into sin. We're to come alongside, we're to help them get back up, we're to pray for them, even if they're being stubborn. I personally think that John was probably concerned that after his listeners would read this letter that they would all put their sin sniffers on and critique each other. Well, this is how we know we're saved. And brother, I'm just not sure about you. Like, look at it. You don't love people like you should. You know, and you said that one weird thing that one time two years ago. Do you still believe that? You know how we can be sometimes. We chuckle and we laugh about the silliness of it. But there are times I know when I'm teaching a sermon on sin and I see you there elbowing your spouse... You listening? You awake? We hear sermons about sin, and our tendency can be, oh, my brother needs to hear this. My mom needs to hear this. My coworker needs to hear this, right? We all do it. I think what John is reminding us here is, what if you find a brother in this situation? He says, well, be compassionate. Pray for him. You, you see a believer struggling with sin? Pray for him. And he wants to be confident that if we pray for them, even though they aren't in God's will right now, God's going to hear and he's going to get involved. He says, if you see your brother sin a sin which not unto death, then ask. And he, God, will give him life for him that sins not unto death. That word life there, it's, it's the word zoe in the Greek, and it refers to that spiritual life. The New Testament uses the Greek word bios, where we get our word biology from to refer to just the animation of life. You know, if you, you say, is he alive? You say, yes, he's breathing. That's bios. But zoe refers to our, our spiritual life that we have in union with God. That's what a brother or sister needs when they're backsliding or struggling with sin. John says, go ahead and pray with confidence. God will give them the spiritual life they need to go through it when you pray for them. In contrast, what if a professing brother or sister in Christ rejects the gospel? John says that's a different situation. He says there is a sin unto death. There does exist a sin, which means a specific action, not a bunch of actions, not a list of actions, but a specific action that is evil and tends toward death. He says it does exist, and I'm not telling you that you should pray for that. In other words, I'm not telling you you should pray the same way for that. If we have a brother or a sister in Christ that rejects the gospel, they profess to be a believer, profess to be a Christian, but then they reject the gospel, well, our prayers need to be a little different. Now you say, okay, Jesus already brought this up though. This is not a new idea. Jesus, when he was with the religious leaders and he had cast out the demons, it tells us that the religious leaders, in the face of all evidence, said he cast out demons by the prince of demons, by Satan's power. And Jesus points out not just the logical problem with that. If Satan casts Satan out, then he's fighting against himself, which no one's going to do. But then he points out the spiritual problem. He goes, guys, 
The Holy Spirit's showing you that I'm from God. The evidence of that is the works I'm doing, the miracles I'm doing. People are being set free. And you are deciding to reject that, harden your heart, and say, I don't care. I will not follow this man. He says, when you do that, you're in dangerous territory. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 through 33, after telling them that, he says this, wherefore, in light of what I just told you, the danger you're in, He says, wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whosoever speaks against in opposition to the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him neither in this world, neither in the world to come. He says, either make the the tree good and then his fruits good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruits corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit." John says, listen, Jesus talked about this. If someone is rejecting Christ, there's no redemption for that. Like you can't get to heaven and go, well, God, I believed you said you died for everything on the cross, so you died for my stubbornness and unbelief. I did, but you never turned from that in faith in the cross. There is no salvation there. There's no life there. You rejected my witness of my son. You rejected the Spirit's witness of my son. You see, part of the Holy Spirit's ministry is to convict us that we're sinners, And that being a sinner is a problem because God is a standard. And that if we don't turn in faith to Christ's righteousness through the cross, we're headed for eternal judgment. That's the Spirit's testimony about Jesus. When I reject the testimony of God's Spirit, it's the same as rejecting God's testimony about His Son. There's no life there. He who has the Son has life. He who does not does not have life. So when I see a professing brother or sister reject Christ, they no longer believe the gospel as it's laid out in Scripture. And so John says, I'm not going to tell you to pray for them the same way that you pray for a fellow believer who's struggling with sin. And the reason John says this is because he's been telling us this whole letter. They went out from us because they weren't of us. He said, if they were of us, they would have continued with us. But the fact that they're out, it shows that that maybe they were never born again. Maybe they've been antichrist all along. Praying for an unbeliever to experience zoe, spiritual life, doesn't work because they don't have life. So John says, I'm not telling you to pray for them that way because they need to repent and believe the gospel first. Now, no, John doesn't say, I forbid you from praying for them this way because the truth is we never know in this situation. Most of us know someone who was in the church and they seemed really genuine and real and seemed like God was working in their life and now they don't believe the gospel. Well, how do you know if they were genuine or not? We can't. We can't. So it's really hard to have confidence when you pray for them and go, Lord, breathe spiritual life into them again, because I don't even know if they were really saved. So I think that's why John says, I'm not going to tell you to pray that way for it. I think John says what he says because it's really hard to pray with confidence when you're praying for a person who's rejected the gospel. And so I think it's better to pray for them, even though you think, well, I I really believe they're saved. It's still probably better to pray for them as if they were an unbeliever, because you just can't know. You'll have more confidence when you pray for them as if they were an unbeliever. But, John says, if it's any other situation, we should pray for them as if they're a believer. Look at verse 17. He goes, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. John closes here with two important truths about sin. Number one, he says, all unrighteousness is sin. In other words, 
all unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is anything that falls short of God's standard. Here's what God says it should be, and if we fall short of it, it's unrighteousness. He says all unrighteousness, everything that falls short of God's standard is sin, an evil deed, something wicked. In other words, there's never a time for us where it's okay to lower God's standard. All deviations from God's command, no matter how unimportant they might seem to us, are evil. I think part of the reason the world is hostile toward the church right now is because the world just hates righteousness. But another big reason that the church, they hate the church and they hate the Lord is because the church is compromised in a lot of God's standards. We harp on transgenderism and homosexuality, but it's become almost normal for professing believers to openly live with and sleep with their significant others when they're not married, to the point where it's perfectly fine to invite one of them to speak at the national prayer breakfast and then joke about how their fiancé wanted to sleep with them before they came, but but that's why they were a little late. Professing believer openly speaking at a prayer breakfast who lives with their fiancé. We should not be treating those things differently. Not at all. We must never move God's standard. But, John says there's another truth that's important. A violation of God's standards doesn't mean a person loses their salvation. He says all unrighteousness is sin and, or literally, at the same time, this is also true. That's true, but this is also true. There is a sin that's not to death. There does exist a category of sin that's not to death. John says both of these things are true. Sin's never okay, but all sin isn't necessarily a rejection of Christ. I think we as Christians struggle to uphold both of those truths. Either we move the goalpost of God's standards or we pounce on a brother when he falls into sin. And John says, don't do either of those things. And so if you see a brother or sister engaging in wrongdoing, go talk to them. Ask them how they're doing. And if they make excuses for their sin, confront them with grace and with truth. And if you continue to see them sin, don't ignore them or write them off or get frustrated with them. Pray for God to work in their life. Pray for God to breathe new life into them. You can know with confidence that God will hear that prayer. Amen? So, do you see how prayer can truly change people's lives? Why it's so important? As the team gets ready to lead us in song, I ask you this morning, in light of what we've learned from these verses, what needs to change about your prayer life? Let's all stand. Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful promise that we can have confidence that you hear us. Lord, that you're answering us. And Lord, even in some of these situations where we're praying for someone that's not walking with you, Lord, we can have confidence that you're gonna work in their life. So Lord, we want to be people who pray. So Lord, if the reason we're not is because we don't trust you or we don't believe you're as good as you say you are or we don't understand our salvation, then Lord, help us to to understand that better. But Lord, if we're here and we understand it, it's a matter of just not trusting you in it. Then Lord, we make that commitment to you now. Lord, we're gonna trust what you say and not how we feel. We're gonna not lean on our own understanding, but in everything, take you into account. Lord, you've given us this precious promise. So, Lord, make us into people who pray, who can have an impact, change lives. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.